Today's episode brought to you by Test Prep MVP. That is a specific initiative of what's called Exercise MVP. Test Prep MVP is a way of using exercise to stimulate an incredibly powerful neurological state so that attention and retention during a study session improves. This is actually an initiative of the Good Athlete Project based on tons of research and proven out countless times. The last time we ran ACT study prep sessions in Chicago, we saw a 3.3 point increase on ACT math exams. Just in case you're not familiar, the ACT is out of 36. We're moving scores 3.3 points on average. Those are outcomes that just can't be matched. Now, to learn more about how it is, how it works, and what we do, reach out to us either at Exercise MVP on social media or at Good Athlete Project, and of course, GoodAthleteProject.com. Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. Ben Skutnik is a former football player, collegiate swimmer, PhD candidate, college professor, and new dad. We first ran into Ben at a Power Athlete Symposium down in Austin, Texas about two or three years ago at this point, and were immediately struck by what I guess you could refer to as his mind-body connection. Let me explain. The guy is 6'2", 230 plus. Uh, At the time, he had long blonde hair, kind of looked like Thor. Cracked skull, the Power Athlete logo tattoo on him. A very physical, intense person, but he was also very kind, very thoughtful, and super intelligent. We've kept the conversation going from afar, and I just ran into him again at this past 2019 Power Athlete Symposium, and it's just very clear to me that he's one of the good ones. He thinks deeply about important issues, He understands the body as a holistic system and the perspective he brings to important conversations and the perspective he brings to his students in his classrooms is one that needs to be replicated. It is, he just serves as a fantastic model for many of the things that the Good Athlete Project is about. I think you're really going to learn a lot from today's conversation with Ben Skutnik. You've published a lot. I'm looking at your thesis also. Yep. And your concentration, can you tell us a little bit more about, so your concentration, tell me if I've got this right, mechanical work of breathing, pulmonary mechanics, and athletic performance. Um, what exactly, yeah, what does your research look like? Can you tell us a little bit more about that theme? Yeah, so in kind of overview, pulmonary mechanics, it's just like it sounds, it's, it's the way that we breathe. Um, and being a swimmer, breathing is a value commodity right as opposed to a a land-based athlete and so my interest is really the work of breathing meaning the oxygen cost of breathing because when we think about breathing we kind of don't think about it and that's what makes us unique you know there's there's very few animals who are autonomic breathers and we're one of them where we don't have to think about actually breathing, but if we look like a dolphin, right? Another high level thinking mammal, they actively have to breathe, right? Mm -hmm. They have to surface and go back down. And so, and this is kind of a big buzz now in the performance world as well, but with, when we don't think about breathing, that means we don't think about the coordination that it takes to breathe. Hmm. And just like any other movement, if we quit thinking about the movement completely, um, we start to shortcut, right? We start to develop workarounds and we start to, to, maybe lose uh, lose the ideal form for something that's more efficient. And the same thing happens with breathing. It's muscles, skeletal muscles control our uh, inflation and, and deflation of our lungs. And then with swimming specifically, we've now changed everything, meaning 
humans were evolved to stand upright on land. This is the gravity that we're used to working with. Um, when we go in the water, we now go from upright to supine. And now we have this altered gravity where no longer do we just rely on our center of gravity. So like on land, we're talking about like our hips, right? Mm -hmm. When we go into the water, or we now have the center of gravity still, but we also have a center of buoyancy. And, and so that changes how a lot of things work in our body, but that center of buoyancy is our lungs. And so to maintain balance in the water, we have to maintain a full lung. Well, to do that is different than what we do anywhere else. We never, you know, when you're lifting weights maybe is the only other time where you might hold your breath during some kind of athletic uh, endeavor, but all other athletics, we breathe freely. Yep. And so that holding of the breath changes a lot of things. Uh, but the problem is we've been limited technologically for a long time to be able to look at that. And we're just now able to, to look at things uh, that are going on in the pulmonary mechanics of swimmers, right? So we know swimming is the only sport that will actually grow the lungs, right? Hmm. So swimmers, you know, if you had a twin brother and he swam and you didn't swim, he would have bigger lungs than you. We can hmm. say that. Um, but we don't necessarily know if that's good or bad. The lungs will grow, but we actually find that the airways don't grow. So now, um, you know, if we can think about physics, we have a cylinder and it has a certain volume. And if we stretch that cylinder, but don't increase the volume, it gets narrower. So when we talk about airways, that means they collapse easier, much like asthmatics, which if we look at swimmers, they have an exponentially higher diagnosis of sport related asthma. Wow. And so that's kind of one of my directions is I think there's a lot of misdiagnosis there. Um, I think it's just a physiological anatomical difference and it's not true asthma. It's just they have, for lack of a better term, like weak airways that just mm. collapse. So, so that's one route. Um, and then like with all the buzz that's going on in, in the sport world right now about breathing, it, we, we finally, I mean, we've known for probably 30 years now that there is an oxygen cost. So meaning there is metabolism, uh, with the muscles that we use for breathing, but people are just now keying into how that could affect performance. So like, uh, you're at, if you're running as fast as you can, so if you're at max exercise, your respiratory muscles can take up to about a third of your cardiac output. So that means a third of, uh, all your oxygen is going to your lungs. And that's because again, we've become kind of inefficient for, for lack of a better term of our with our breathing. So, a lot of these, um, a lot of these people in the, in the performance world are now coming up with, you know, nasal breathing or, or all these different breathing, um, you know, approaches to breathing, I guess. And I'm interested in the physiology behind all that. Yeah. I mean, I am too. And I want you to keep going because this is super interesting to me. Uh, when you, when you bring up the lungs, I'm, I'm reminded of all the sort of the cardiac issues and the enlarged heart stuff mm -hmm. going on is there is there a parallel there is that you know are, are those in the same category like the, the body is developing an efficiency based well, on the demands that it's finding but but is is that healthiest long term well and that's just it you know we don't the yeah the stuff with the athlete heart is just coming out now and we've been interested in that for a while so right. the interest in the lungs is is relatively newer than that so we just don't necessarily have the data but yeah i mean the, the heart and the lungs, they're intertwined in a whole bunch of ways, right? Um, con congestive heart failure means that fluid is backing up in the lungs, right? It, it, they're, you know, they're the yin and yang of, of your physiological system. So 
yeah, it, it would be intuitive to say if we're seeing negative effects with, you know, with the heart from this long-term training, um, we likely could see negative health outcomes in the pulmonary side as well. We just haven't, like I said, haven't gotten the data to really look at all that yet. I think that's that's incredibly interesting. I, I'm. I also got to say this. <clears throat> so my grandfather, and I'll, there'll be a point here in a second. Uh, okay. My uh, my grandfather, like you, was a defensive end and a swimmer. This was this was like obviously way farther back. So I don't like the the off season strength training wasn't quite the same. But I know that he was doing things. He was asking things of his body um, that were I think were unique. By, by today's standards, they'd certainly be unique, but he was he was uh, cutting for swim season, and then he'd be like old school, uh, crack an egg into the milkshake to gain weight for football season type stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, it, which is which is wild. But um, is, is there anything? Is there anything in the difference of chain uh, of uh, of seasons in the way that you train for either season that would be either positive or negative? And I, I think what I'm mostly thinking about is. Um, I was actually, you know, you know the name Pavel, you know that guy. Yeah. Do you know what I'm yeah, big. T- yeah. Of course. Uh, he was mentioning something the other day. He's, you know, all about kettlebells, and and there's these theories about what what some people call interruption training, where if you, if you have long sort of steady state interrupted by something heavy and fast, what that could potentially do. Do you have any insights into into those sort of cross training models? Well, so there's a couple things I think that um, are important to. to realize about this stuff, right? The, the beauty of like what your grandfather did and what I did was we focused on this big, powerful sport in football, but then in the off season, we expanded our aerobic base exponentially, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about performance and even when we go down the route of like performance enhancing drugs and all that, what it's really centered around is the ability to recover to perform again. Mm-hmm. And in the strength world and and a lot of the power sports some people i think uh, i don't think everybody i think some people forget the value of having an aerobic base mm-hmm. and it doesn't need i mean i'm not expecting the nfl defensive linemen to be able to go out and run a marathon that that's not what you need but you do need some degree of aerobic fitness to be able to maintain a high power output mm-hmm. and so there is that interplay, and and yeah, Pavel could call it disruption training. Um, in the research, we'll call it concurrent training. Mm-hmm. And there's some, I guess, different viewpoints on exactly how we should prescribe that. If we should do the strength training first, and then the aerobic stuff, or you know, I think I think most common they'll say you need. It doesn't really matter which way, but as long as you have like four to six hours in between, and I think that's just to kind of get some hormonal balance back before you you hit the other training session. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's a lot of value there to train both sides of the coin because really what it comes down to is whatever genetic cards you're dealt, that's where your body's gonna favor, right? So, um, you know, you talked about your, your grandfather would cut for swimming and then bolt back up for football. I did the same thing. Um, in football, I was about 235 pounds. And then by the time state, uh, championships for swimming came around, I was about 190. And that wasn't necessarily an active cut because when I swam, I probably actually ate more than when I played football. Mm -hmm. But the sport, the training, and just your genetics are going to guide you a certain way. So in swimming, during swimming season, I didn't lift weights as much. So naturally, I lost some muscle mass, right? Mm -hmm. And so my body kind of adapted how it was going to adapt. And then when I started training again, heavy weights, uh, plyometrics, a lot of sprints and stuff for football, 
I got big again. So I think there is a component of overthinking in today's world about exactly what the kind of training you should do hmm. because really what your body's going to do what it's going to do to an extent, right? You want to insert these different stimuli, sure, but, um, you know, so in, in my other job, I, I work with the guys at Power Athlete, John Wellborn, he could, uh, you know, he could get on the assault bike for 45 minutes every day and he's still going to be 6'7", 290 pounds, right, right? Right, Like his genetics are just dictating that. So, so there is a lot of value to tapping into both worlds and, and obviously for each sport, it'd be a different demand, but um, in reality, it's not going to swing too far because that's the other side of the camp. People are afraid right. like, oh, you're going to, you're going to build this aerobic base and you're going to lose all your power. Mm -hmm. uh, not really. You know, if you do high intensity aerobic stuff, you're still tapping into the type two fibers. You're still mm -hmm. requiring those guys to fire those large motor units. So it's not, it's not like we used to think it was where you're either, you know, this aerobic, uh, lanky guy who's running marathons or you're this big meathead, right? There, okay. there, there is in between that. Yeah, I, I'm so happy to hear you say that. So, um, I mean, I've thought that for ages, what you just said, but you just, uh, you are a university professor, so it matters more. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, I, I mean, like, just anecdotally, I'll tell you for sure, um, when I am more just sort of well-rounded fit, meaning like I've, I'm, I'm moving in a higher variety of ways, I'm doing a little bit of aerobic training, um, I'm, I think I'm better at all things. And that includes like powerlifting, you know, like I, I think, um, yep. you know, um, it's just the truth. And, 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 uh, for example, there was this one, there was this one time where I was like, man, I wonder, I wonder if I, so I got up to, uh, I was as high as about 270, 275 when I was playing football. Um, I'm only six two. So that was like a heavy, dense person. Um, and, and as I was sort of coming oh, yeah. down to a more natural weight, I started recognizing that like, not only could I still do the things like, you know, my, uh, my hand clean numbers and stuff like that, uh, not only were they still fine and I would, you know, if I studied some numbers, I would say pretty damn good. Um, but like I, they were almost getting better as I was mm -hmm. going, um, you know, I, I was doing more running, I was doing more aerobic work, uh, which I was like a terrified of when I was trying to gain, you know, when I was trying to put on weight. Um, but, but functionally those things, it, one didn't undercut the other in the way that I had, I think, been taught. Right. You know, and this is going back to kind of what got me interested in all this. Again, I watched the wrestling team, right? And, and yeah. here's the deal. Like, wrestlers train. Like, they yes. train uh, combat sport athletes, I guess I should say. Just train more than any other athlete I know. But if you watch a 189-pound wrestler, they are still plenty of explosive, yeah. right? But but they have the engine to last for a very long time. So mm -hmm. yeah, this this old school thought process of oh you can't train both. It's like I'm watching athletes who do train both and are yeah. performing at such a high level, right? So yeah. Um, yeah, I mean kind of the same thing as you. So when I was done with college, I decided I I, I watched Pumping Iron, and sure. I'm like you, I'm six <laughs> two, and in the movie they talk about Lou Ferrigno, he's six two, two hundred seventy five pounds, mm -hmm. and I was like. I want to see what that looks like, right? Yeah, I want well, to see listen, what... if you want to know what that looks like, just double back on pictures of me while I was playing. It was like a young Lou Ferrigno. Oh, yeah, man. No, and I'm so joking. I, I chased it. Like, I, I chased it. I tried to get there. And uh, <laughs> and it was it was hard. Did not... I think I topped out at 260, maybe. Um, yeah. Well, that's a and I was just, person still. 
I was like sweating every time I tied my shoes. Like it was just horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and now I'm, I'm back down to, yeah, I guess what I would say my body settled at and yeah. it's much lighter than that, but strength isn't much different, but quality of life, like that's, that's the big thing, right? Totally. In all of these training theories and, and things like that, people forget that if your body is constantly stressed, so if you're pushing the needle too far, if you are, you know, 40 pounds overweight, whether that's muscle or fat, your body still has this like natural range, right? Yeah. Um, just like anything else, right? If you if you wake up and your temperature is 99.5, you feel horrible. And that's less than a degree past what average is, right? right. But you feel so bad. And, and that's because that range is so much more controlled. Now, body weight, uh, body composition, things like that, a little bit wider range of what your body naturally wants to settle at. But if you're above that, whether you're lean or fat or, or whatever, your body's still under stress. So then you're having a harder time recovering, right? And so, like you said, you came back down, you added a little bit more aerobic, and now your body just feels better, you know? And, and yeah. I think that's what a lot of us in the performance world kind of forgot is, yeah, so maybe the two hours or whatever of, of training or game time, you performed well, but what about those other hours? How are, are you mm-hmm. recovering? Are you, is your body under stress or is it able to be in a, in a state of recovery? Yeah, yeah, totally. Is it healthy enough to be in a state of recovery? I, I think that's exactly right. I, I'll tell you, and I'm going to just filter my current processes and some of the things that I'm involved with through you. So our powerlifting team, we have a powerlifting team at um, my day job at Nutria. Fantastic group of people. Um, I, I guess shout out to them if they're listening. But we say all the time that we're probably leaving pounds on the platform. And um, what we mean by that is we very few of our kids are just power lifters. Mm-hmm. Um, I, listen, I, I don't know how else to say this. Not, like they, they win stuff. They're good. They, they do a, a really nice job. The outcomes have been fantastic over the past five, 10 years. And, um, but still we want people who could play a game of pickup basketball if they wanted to, and not have that be agony. You know, we want to, we, we want to, if you want to participate in a 5k, that should be okay. And a lot of the people are uh, athletes in other sports. In fact, we had um, two swimmers on our state girls roster last year who were, you know, our state powerlifting roster, uh, also swimmers. So um, I, I say all that, and I think it aligns exactly with what you're saying. I say we leave pounds on the platform because I don't think we've fully optimized to be powerlifters, like a single rep output nine times over the course of a day. But I don't, I say that like, to recognize what could be considered training flaws from a powerlifting filter, but I actually don't think that it's that bad. Um, I, I feel like if, we, if they're healthier, like you say, just going through their days, um, I, I think they're recovering better. I think they're sleeping better. I don't think they're in agony when they get out of their school desks or out of the cars, which you see from from sort of old school one rep powerlifters. I think having um, some sort of base in overall health and wellness is actually optimizing their powerlifting performance in maybe non-obvious ways. Yeah, and so this is this could open a tangent about one of my biggest issues with the current state of the training realm. Yeah. But um, you know, we look at we look like the Russians and the Eastern Europeans in the weightlifting world, right? Mm-hmm. And they um that's where a lot of the periodization training uh, in theory came from and, and we can say like oh but they were you know probably on some sort of performance enhancers right. but more so than that you need to look at the eastern european and russian model 
of what they did with their five-year-olds. And mm-hmm. the same thing can be said about China right now and in a little bit Japan. They train these kids in, you know, like the most classic terms of gymnasiums as possible. These mm-hmm. kids do all sorts of activities and then they kind of just like filter through into whatever they're better at as time goes on. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a, a, one of my close colleagues from Indiana. He's now the uh, the swim coach down at Tulane University. He's from Japan, and I, I was able to go back and spend six weeks in Japan with him, and he kind of showed me his upbringing. He was, um, you know, one spot away from being an Olympic swimmer for Japan, and kind of the common no- or common thought there would be like, oh, you must have swam all your life, right? And mm. and I went back and he showed me all these pictures of him playing baseball and how baseball was his main sport growing up and, and all these things. And, and, and then I, he took me to the school system and I saw again, their kids, what they're doing, they're doing a lot of gymnastics. They're doing a lot of tumbling, a lot of running around, just, you know, they have a sports festival every year where they do all sorts of sports. And so that's, I, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Are your kids leaving pounds on the platform? I would guarantee it. But mm-hmm. at 15, 16, 17, does it matter? No, you know, it absolutely does not matter because yeah, they could, you know, you could have kids putting out much better numbers on the powerlifting platform, uh, developing, yeah, some kind of, uh, structural injury, Mm long-term nagging injury that that when they're 22 and they're at some college party trying to have fun, they slip a disc and now they're, you know, having to get a spinal fusion while everybody else is out, you know, having fun. So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. Uh, when I was coaching the club swimming teams, I sometimes would apologize to the kids saying, hey, we could do better and that's on me. But then I would let them know the reason we're not doing more and doing what some of your peers at other teams are doing is simply because I don't think it's that valuable. And, and sometimes that's a tough conversation to have with kids because they are so competitive, yeah. right? The, yeah. And you probably know this working with high schoolers. I don't have to get them up to compete. They want to win, right? That's, and I think that's another thing that kind of society is forgetting that the kids want to win more than I wanted to win, right? And so I would oftentimes have to dial them back, but I was fortunate enough um, at the time when I was in Indiana coaching the club, uh, youth club team there, our best swimmer uh, after, or came to me in the fall season and said he wanted to quit. And like this kid was like national level. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, like I'm, I'm aware enough that if I fight with him right now about why he should stay out and, and all his successes, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Right. I was like, all right, well, what are you going to do? And he's like, well, I think I want to play baseball. And it's like, go for it, right? Do what you want to do because you're 16 years old right now. Mm-hmm. He played baseball and he came back in the spring and he's like, oh, that, that wasn't you know, as fun. And it's like, okay, but if I were to be that coach who, you know, quote unquote, knew, knew what was best for him or... Mm-hmm you know, wanted to push him to really maximize his swimming potential, I probably would have burnt him out. Um, He probably would have walked away from swimming and just never came back. And right now he's 23 years old. He's a multi-American record holder and he's likely going to be on the Olympic team. And it's like, well, like, again, is it worth it? Not at all. Like nobody can convince me ever that it's worth risking those outcomes, those negative outcomes, just for this fleeting moment of success as a high schooler. Right. No, there's no doubt, man. And you are, it is sort of a can of worms because um, the entire LTAD long-term athlete development movement is such a necessary conversation and it might not be more relevant in any space more so than swimming. 
from my experience. Like we have a we have a guy who works with us. His name's Rob Miner. Awesome guy, great coach. Um, got a scholarship to swim in college. So I would I would say, with that in mind, an elite swimmer by a lot of standards. Yeah. He. Um, I won't name any names or cite anything specific, but in certain local swimming clubs where there's a lot of elite kids, Rob would not have been allowed to swim with the first team or like the top team. And the reason is those clubs have like contractual limitations for like 13 year olds that essentially say, if you don't compete with us year round, um, you can, even though you're paying to be part of this, you, you can't compete with our top team. So Rob, who wanted to uh, try other sports, like you said, he wanted to try, I don't know if it was baseball or lacrosse or, um, you know, he wanted to try out other sports. He was, let's be honest, he was a child, <clears throat> a very gifted swimmer, but a child. Um, you know, th there, were, there were limitations imposed on him by adults that, that might have been setting him up for um, real issues down the line. And I, I'll say this, this is to your credit, um, when you mentioned the kids want to win more than you want to win, I think that's because you've got your head on straight. Uh, we, we, you know, that's not always the case. We've been very lucky to um, serve thousands of students, uh, student athletes and coaches. And I will tell you that that's not always the case. Sometimes, um, every so often, the coaches will be... I'm not going to go much further with this. All you got to do is look at look up some, some stuff like this on Instagram to recognize that maybe the adults have... Um, have skewed the set of priorities. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess what I should say is the kids are more aware if they win or lose than anybody else, right? Because they're they're okay, in the arena, sure, they're yes. on the field and in the court and, and in the pool. So if they lose, they know. Yeah. And if they win, they know. So it's like I don't need to re you know confirm that for them, right? Yeah. It just doesn't better anything either way if they win or lose, right? Because if they lose. They know. There's nothing I can say to let them know, right, more. And if they win, I am obligated to teach them how to manage that, right? Mm -hmm. Because because that there's a lot of different ways you can go. You can either become complacent, right? And so you need to kind of reignite some flames. Or there are plenty of athletes I've worked with who winning, well, that's not good enough. And it's like, well, no, you need to you need to sit and enjoy this for a second because you did good. You know, you you everything you did everything you were supposed to do and, it, and the outcome was positive so yeah i just i feel like you know in this I, i'll say this is a credit to my parents because both of them i now know were very interested and very support I, I knew they were supportive but they were very interested in my athletic endeavors but neither of them ever really showed that in meaning you know they would come to my games and they would cheer me on and things like that but my dad never gave me advice driving home or, or anything like that yeah, it's definitely being lost now. I, I see a lot of parents when I was coaching or, yeah, through social media where it's just like, I'm never going to tell a parent how to parent, but it's not how I would react. It's not how I would do things with my kids. And, and my wife and I talk about it. Our daughter's seven months old, but we're already talking about stuff like that because sure. she came from a, uh, she's from Southern Indiana. So basketball is huge. All of her family played basketball and, and, you know, she saw, um, the same thing I saw from swimming parents, right? She saw plenty of parents who just go off the deep end and now she's a high school principal and so oh. she still sees it. And so I think, yeah, you have an obligation as an, an adult, whether it's a coach or a parent or just some kind of adult influence in the kid's life to um, keep them balanced because they know when they win, they know when they lose, they're gonna know it more than anybody else. And so it's not your role to, to highlight any of that. 
you're totally right. And I do want to come back to this LTAD idea. I've got an idea for you, but but you're right. And, and, and I can't not let that comment uh, be further addressed because that's a huge part of what we do. Um, we oftentimes will try to equip coaches with the language to help frame experiences. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that, that might be the biggest thing because you're right. No one, if a kid, if, if you lose a tight game, you, you probably don't need a reminder. You just felt yeah. it. But, but giving, but equipping someone, coaches, to then equip students with the language to, um, you know, interact with this challenge or barrier or obstacle or setback or whatever you want to call it, um, that, that's something that is probably not talked about enough or, or, um, or at least not thoroughly enough. I love what you said about winning even. Like you have to help people manage uh, success. That's something that, that isn't talked about very often. But can would you become complacent? Would you become, uh, we would call it obsessively dissatisfied, where you're always mm-hmm. looking for the next thing and it's, it's sort of a negative relationship to, to competition. Um, that is, you know, the response to success is not obvious for a 15-year-old necessarily. Uh, and it's up to the sort of the, the adults, the mentors in the space to, to help guide. So I think that's all really good. All right, my question for you is this now. Uh, you have a seven-month-old child. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Can she swim? So oh, we we actually just signed her up for infant swimming lessons. Oh, actually, okay, Perfect. yeah. So uh, hypothetically, say she shows some real, real talent and enjoys it, um, and maybe it's too early. But I'm curious if she was in one of those situations, like I mentioned, one of our coaches was, where the, the, you are either signing a contract to go year-round and and go all in on this, um, maybe the question is, when is that appropriate? When do you pass the threshold where, okay, now I can really dig in and, and uh, give all I have to this one sport? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a little bit of a complex, or that's a simple question, but there's a complex answer to that because there is research showing um, what I'll call physiological ages of specialization, right? So um, gymnastics, for example, there is a reason why girls specialize so young and a lot of it has to do with lever length right if they're shorter they can spin faster they can complete harder routines when they grow um, they put on mass either you know in their breasts or in their waist and that changes the the dynamics of their movement they get longer limbs so now spins take longer so so there is some research out there for, for all sports about what an ideal physiological age of specialization is, right? Sure. Um, but for me, and it's it's easy to say it now, right? I'm sure uh, it'll be a little bit more difficult if she does find success in certain sports. Mm-hmm. But I truly believe, and this is part of from my own athletic experience and part of just seeing other athletes go through their whole athletic life cycle. I just don't think it really matters in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I I know, again, uh, I work with John Wellborn, 10-year NFL veteran, right? Impossible to say that that didn't add value to his life. He didn't learn plenty of lessons from there. But I also look at John Wellborn, the guy, the man, right? And I would say he probably would have learned those lessons from any endeavor because it has more to do with the type of person he is, mm-hmm, right? right? And so my wife and I talk about this because do I hope she – has some passion for athletics yes because i think um you know so again i'm i'm six two about 235 now my wife is six foot um i mean she's i think she'll have genetics right my wife's my wife's the shortest woman in her family so um 
I think she's going to get dealt a pretty good genetic card from that side. There are, as a youth, certain lessons that are best learned in athletics, right? How to handle winning, how to handle losing, teamwork, things like that. Mm -hmm. But it's also just another avenue of development. I hope she also finds something in the arts that she really is passionate about. Um, You know, and and so, so I hope she just finds passion in it. If she decides herself that she wants to, you know, kind of singularly specialize at an early age, Mm -hmm. I, I guess I'll just rely on my knowledge of training to make sure that we're countering that somehow to make sure that we don't get pigeonholed into these long-term um, or overuse injury scenarios. Yep. yep. But no, I, I just don't know. My mindset now as the parent is I don't think I'll ever push it because I've seen enough people go that route and enough people go the route of never specializing. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I think, you know, it doesn't really have that great of an effect as long as you're making the well-rounded right both yeah. mentally emotionally physically uh, completely you know holistically yeah, uh, holistically right and, and, and i that's I, I like that you use that word because that, that might be one of the next words that we try to beat back the stigma on like there uh, a holistic approach to medicine has has gotten sort of uh you know i, th- I think people are skeptical of that but when you think of the actual meaning of the word, to recognize the entire system, body, mind, etc., um, what else would you possibly want? Um, yeah. You'd want to strike on all fronts. Um, and, and why don't I use this as a I, – I, this is really important in, in my life and, and in a lot of the consulting that we do. You, you mentioned it early on, and this might be the segue, uh, stress. So like mm-hmm. you – what um, – what an incredible and omnipresent factor that is in people's lives and why we're not talking about it in, in more thorough and, like you say, holistic ways um, is, is a shame. Now, I do think that, that the table is starting to turn. People are starting to lean into um, differentiating like levels of stress and sorts of stress. But I'll just, I'll just personalize it real quick. How do you manage being a new father um, being a PhD candidate and a university professor and not get overly taxed? Well, I mean, honestly, sometimes I don't manage it. And I mean, that's, and, and why I say that is because I think, again, talking about obligations that we have, if, if the millions of your listeners are listening to this right now, you know, I, right. I think I'm obligated to let people know that all that kind of garbage they see on social media of, of how pretty the picture looks is is kind of a false narrative, right? Yeah. There are times where I don't manage it. Um, you can ask my wife. I I will, there will be sometimes days where it's just like, I got to settle down. I make every effort to try and manage it. And having a daughter has changed that because now you have, it's very interesting when you have a kid, you now have a set of eyes that are always watching you, right? And yeah. Um, like I said, my wife is a principal at high school. Actually, it's a it's a K through 12. It's a small school system. So she sees kids of all ages every day. Yep. And she'll talk about her day at work and, and what went on. And, and all I keep coming back to is, you know, those kids, if they mess up or whatever, they learned it somewhere. And it's 100%, especially with the young kids, they learned it from watching their parents, right? Because that's all they see. And so having, having our daughter has helped me manage it just by forcing me to manage it. And so um, how do I manage stress? I had to learn, my biggest um, step was learning that I need to stop, right? So with work, for instance, I'm a faculty member, I tell my students, hey, Friday at 5 p.m., I'm no longer answering emails until Monday at 6 a.m., right? Because 
students have, have no idea. They don't really have an understanding of time. And, sure. and I would get emails at, you know, 11 p.m. Saturday night, and I would feel the obligation to email them back because that's kind of the world we live in, right? Immediate right. response. And so setting up barriers like that, giving myself hard time stamps of this, you know, I have to stop here. I can't start back up until here. Um, and then also <clears throat> just kind of, you know, realizing, and this is, I only think you can realize this with age is if I were to get my whole to-do list done today, there's going to be a to-do list tomorrow, That's right? right. These, these tasks never, I'm never completely free of tasks to do. And those tasks are never really that pertinent, right? A, Again, I'll use my PhD as an example. If you ask typical PhD length, someone will say like, oh, four, maybe five years, right? And so I'm going on year seven now. And three years ago, I was actually, um, you know, so this was before I married my wife. I was single. I was living by myself. And I was actually in like a super dark place because I felt all of this pressure that I wasn't completing on time and, and all this stress and trying to keep all these, you know, plates spinning in the air. And it, it sent me down... Um, you know, I'll say like a pretty, pretty unhealthy mental state. And, um, but now fast forward, if I could have only seen then what I can, what I, where I am now, I have a university job, married with a kid, everything's fine. And so what was all that stress worth? Right. It didn't, uh, it was crippling. It didn't help me. It wasn't productive. right? Right. The, the concept of, you know, these great minds never sleep and their 80 hour work week and all that. No, it's not true because I work with these great minds, right? I see these great minds every day and I see the ones who truly are successful are the ones that can turn it off, right? It has nothing to do with their constant stream of production. It has all to do with their ability to turn it off and then their ability to turn it on. And when they turn it on, they are almost singularly focused, right? Mm -hmm. The most successful uh, faculty members and, and researchers I've seen when they show up to the office, they're driven. Yeah. But then four o'clock, five o'clock, they shut the door, turn off the lights, and you don't hear from them until the next day. Right. And and I think, you know, the concept of work-life balance is starting to become a little bit more prevalent, but I still think a, there's a lot of influences about what, um, you know, a, a false narrative of what that looks like. And a right. good work-life balance doesn't mean, oh, I can go, you know, I only work four hours a, a week and then I spend, five days in the Bahamas. And it's like, well, that's not realistic, right? Right, right. That's, that's, that's Instagram's idea. Right. But, um, pair that down, those concepts can still be applied, you know? And and so for me, that's, that's just how I handled it. I just literally had to block things out. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and now after doing that for the last year or so, I've gotten a little bit better at being dynamic, right? Hmm. Because, the danger of doing that like hard blocking is sometimes you do have to work late. Like sometimes you do, you know, there are projects that pop up or there are things that you didn't plan for. And so how do you handle that? And so it's not, you know, where my pendulum swung from one extreme to the other, I'm settling back in the middle of, I'm pretty good at turning things off, but if I have to stay on, I'm good at recognizing if I truly do have to, or if I just feel like I have to. Ben, this is a, such a, an exciting sort of full circle moment here uh, because I think what you just identified is another sort of metaphor or parallel to um, whether it's nutrition, exercise or whatever, essentially the way that we started the conversation, which is like if you've got – if you can set up 
healthy barriers and structure your life and be intentional and set up blocks of time um, and, and that is the structure of most of your life, then the day that you've got to you know, stay up till one cranking out a paper, um, it's more of a, a blip on the radar of an otherwise healthy lifestyle than a, a, a terrible disruption or, or worse still, the way that you live your life habitually. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that aligns with the work that we do, Ben, like so well. Um, equipping people with that sort of what we would call loosely sort of mindful, intentional um, set of like habit building and life building and structure building within one's life. That, that's like the ultimate goal. It's amazing how many people that we feel very privileged to work with in high level administration. You mentioned your wife is a principal, you know high-ranking folks in elite schools as an example uh, people in business people um, you know people working towards the Olympics or professional sports who just don't have that skill they have an incredible skill and that's made them elite in whatever their field might be but they've not learned for some reason or other those those self-management skills and I'll tell you just like to be totally open uh, I finished my second advanced degree. I'm not a PhD candidate like you, so I'm, I'm not bragging, but I, I finished my second advanced degree from a, a name brand university and, and recognized at some point along my research that no one had ever taught me how to do these other things that seem to be leading to all the successes I've had in my life, like just prioritizing health and wellness to sleep well. I, w I was at the I was in the second term um, of my time at Harvard and recognized one day that I was grinding so hard. And like, in, in, you know, I, like you, I had like a football mindset. I'm like, if I do this better and longer and harder, probably the outcomes will improve, just like when I was on the field. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it just didn't work that way. I was more, I remember I was more stressed than I was. I wasn't sleeping well. I was drinking coffee too late into the day. and. And uh, you know the, those self-management skills, uh, I was forced to like sort of come across them experientially and had never been taught them. Um, so I'm just really encouraged by everything that you just said. Yeah, and you know, and this goes back to my advisor making. I don't know if you've read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. If you I haven't, have, yeah. you you have. Yes, sir. Yeah, and so you know, one of the big themes there is quality, right? What. Yep. What does quality mean? What control do we have over quality? And that's, I tell them all the time, I tell my advisor, you know, the worst thing you had me do was read that book because up until that point, yeah, it was very much just grind, right? Get yep. this done, do this. It could be because after this, I'm going to do this. And then after this, I'm going to do this. And and for the first few years of my PhD, I, I was still doing that but then i was having this inner dialogue of you know the why what's is this quality work or is this just work and, and yeah. things like that and and you know i i'm really grateful for him because i think any other advisor probably would have cut me from the program right because again i'm on my seventh year now i'm no longer at the university so it's like it's a crapshoot for some people if they're going to yeah. finish um and so I'm thankful that he gave me that opportunity because, again, he realized kind of the bigger picture. Um, like I said, we spent two and a half hours talking about everything but science the first time I met him, right? And so um, I think it's it's understandable when people get caught up in, the, in their daily life like that, when they do take on that mindset. And I think that's something else that we do need to make sure we, we tell people. I understand why they would get that way, right? Um, but... 
yeah, it's anything but healthy, right? And we know that. And and so the hard part that I think we're all transitioning through right now is okay, we know it's not healthy, but for you know generations prior to this, this is how things were done. So how do we shift now? Because I have some students who they will say the right words. Oh, like I'm trying to keep a good work life balance. I'm I'm trying to be mindful, blah, blah, blah. But what they're actually doing is just you know, for lack of a better term, being lazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Understanding like you still have to do things. You yeah. still have yeah. to get things done. Yeah. But finding that true balance, not just, you know, it's like the self-care movement. It's like, okay, self-care means truly caring about yourself and you can't care about yourself if you're not improving or progressing, right? If right. you are staying complacent or regressing, yes. you're not actually caring. Totally. Self-care does not mean avoidance of uh, yes. the things that are hard. Yeah. Yeah, and so so then again, like if it, with my role with Power Athlete doing the nutrition stuff, there's there are some times where the conversation is, hey, we need to build a healthy relationship with food. Don't worry about counting calories and, and all of that. But then there are very real times where it's like, hey, quit being an asshole. Like do what you know you're supposed to do. Don't write it off as, oh, you know, like you said, you had a family holiday, right? That's mm-hmm. fine. But if you have family holidays every other day or right, two, right. three times a week, right, then yeah. quit saying like, oh, I'm spending time with my family and get real with yourself, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, you're exactly right. And our, our like our, it, it started as, as a real sort of behind the scenes mantra when we would go in and do um, nonprofit consulting. Uh, but it has become just like an everyday, what we're calling practical mindfulness. Th- this idea, does your behavior match your goal? is um, for a lot of people really difficult to confront um, yes. it, it, because so much of it is like, and I think it just brings all things to light. Uh, there, there's two bits of, and I don't know if I've ever fully articulated it on the podcast before, but there, there, it, the, the, the language selection within that comment is, is incredibly specific and intentional. So does your behavior, so step one is there's an accountability factor, the things you do. You know, we're not talking about the circumstances you are in. We're not talking about the genetic hand you're dealt, et cetera. Does your behavior, there's ownership there, match your goal? And and a huge component of that is the way that we build out our workshops and interventions. Uh, it starts by identifying what your goal is. And um, I'm, I'm envisioning this, this person eating around the holidays. Um, and I'll just, so it doesn't feel like I'm pointing fingers, I will internalize it. My goal last night when I was with my family was uh, to enjoy my time with my family. And, and that's fine. And, and that means I had a couple beers and some pizza and, and I'm comfortable with that. Uh, I recognize that that wasn't done to me, that that was my behavior. Um, and I took a, a, a subtle sidestep from an otherwise like pretty consistent um, drive to be healthy and fit and strong and all those kind of things. Uh, right. and, and that's and, and that's what I think people need to identify more often than not. There's a forgiveness. You use the word, there's an understanding to it. Um, here's what I'm doing. Here's how it's affecting me. I sort of, I'll, I'll have the humility to forgive myself in the moment, but I do have to confront the question, is this getting me to a, a different or better place? And all that needs to do is align with one's own goals. Yeah, no, and that's not, not as well thought out as what you have, but I often will t- times will tell people, you know, what are your priorities? And they'll tell me their priorities and I'll say, I just don't believe you because your actions aren't showing oh, me that well that's like that's the so i'll t- say that to my friends um sometimes it's harder to do that in in consultation but do absolutely that's true i remember i'll, I'll we, had, we had a kid um who I, it was a football player big huge lineman he went off to uh play in the mac actually he got a scholarship very good 
football player, uh, but was constantly about 20 pounds heavy. And, um, and we kept, we would ask him over and over, like, you know, we tried to do it the right way. What do you want? Dude, I think you'd be better if you, if you got a little uh, more of an aerobic pace, some, some fitness here. Uh, what do you want? And when he would acknowledge that he wanted to be fitter and drop a couple pounds, we'd be like, great, we're on the right path. And then we, we, we would ask him like, uh, all right, big man, um, what'd you have for lunch today? And he, you know, and he's weighing in higher than he's ever weighed and he's like, I just had apples and we are like, that's not correct. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. <laughs> we need to, we need to confront the truth here. And, and because sometimes, uh, tough love, as long as it aligns, aligns with one's own goals is, uh, is probably the, one of the, one of the best ways to show support if you do it appropriately. Yes. Yeah. And that, and, but that goes to, again, what we were talking about kind of earlier with, you know, certain parents and coaches, the idea of tough love has changed. So my dad, the tough love my dad got from my grandpa is yeah. not effective tough love, totally. right? Totally. But at the time they didn't know that. In the time they thought they were doing the best they could do. And right. and what my father, his tough love towards me, I I stand in belief that nobody actively does what they don't think is the best, right? Huh. So the way my father parented me was, was I have to believe what what he thought was the best way to parent, right? right but as right. time goes on, we learn new things. We learn, yes, tough love is still good, but there's a difference between tough love and degradation or totally. tough love yes. and belittlement, right? And and so, yeah, and, and a lot of that, like you said, comes from get them to say what they want. So, okay, so you want to you wanna lose 20 pounds. All right, so I will help you outline how to do that. Mm-hmm. But then... When you don't do this plan that we came up with together based off of what you told me you wanted, Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to be that balance. I'm going to have to be that person that says, hey, you're not doing what you said you would. And that's not a comment on you, a person, Mm -mm. right? That's a comment just on on your specific actions are not leading towards what you said you wanted, which again is understandable, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's hard. It's it's hard to do. It's hard to make change. Totally. But... uh, but completely avoid confrontation, like minute conflicts that might come when confronting those things. That's that's a disservice that I think a lot of folks are, are doing to kids under the guise of they don't want to be negative, right? That's right. That's exactly right. And and um, yeah, there's a difference, and that's why I keep coming back from mindful is a stigmatized word, but you know, however you want to think about that. Again, we think of mindfulness as, as being present and intentional yeah. in your behavior. Yep. But like a, a huge component of mindfulness is uh, holding back too much judgment. Like you're not, we're, when we interact with people like that, we do exactly kind of what you're talking about. We, you know, we have workshops that that try to essentially equip coaches with the ability to do that work that you're talking about really well and without judgment. It's not you know it's not based on opinion. There's not belittlement going on here. It's just a system of support, sometimes via accountability. Um, that is that is really really necessary and super effective. Uh, like you said, I think I think over flowery coaching, just to kind of put a, a high level bow on it, over flowery, all positive coaching all the time. No one ever has done anything wrong. You're the best. Is probably not forcing positive adaptation in one's life, physically or psychologically. But then also, like you said, belittlement, negativity. Um, I, I think about this and sort of. Um, forgive some of those who came before me because I think the tough love, like you said, of our parents' generation, or at least like the way that my, I, I know that my dad was raised, I, you know, that's, that's probably derived, and this is not a flippant comment, um, 
from the way that they held people accountable around wartime. You know what I mean? Like oh, sure. are people influenced by the army in some way or other, whether it was rationing, um, you know, provisions or whatever it was, or people who actually served, um, thinking that this is what discipline looks like. Um, you know, trying to understand that, if, if and ultimately getting to a place of forgiveness is has been an important thing for me at least. So, yeah, something that something recently I've I've gone to is uh, Dabo Sweeney, uh, Clemson's football coach said in an interview, you know, have you ever, it's not, it was, and I'm going to butcher this, so we'll just say I'm paraphrasing it, but sure. everybody will say like iron sharpens iron, right? People want to jump on that saying, yep. but he mentioned something about how if you watch the actual act of iron sharpening iron, there's going to be a lot of sparks flying. Yep. And and that's just it, right? If If the overall intention of all parties involved is to become better, right? There will surely be times of conflict, but there will also surely be times of group um, enjoyment, right? So you, you can't have one without the other and, and both are equally necessary to get to the end point. So, so yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of what you're saying is, is I'm 100% behind because I just think it's off of my experiences as a coach or an athlete. It, it's, it's something that we need to make sure we are bringing to kids these days. Totally agree. Um, all right. Well, before, so I've got a, a very brief question because uh, our guy Alex has what we call some lightning round questions, and, and I think he slipped some training questions in there too. Um, okay. But the uh, b- before we go, what what is next for you? So uh, finish finishing the dissertation this year. Yep. And then um, the like I said, I work as a sports science uh, role with the athletic program here, and if you're paying attention to college athletics, uh, University of Louisville is having a pretty good year. So we have some projects that I've been discussing with the director over there about implementing along the lines of kind of a a student athlete wellness, right? Um, Some sleep monitoring, some some stuff like that. So um, that's in my university role, that's kind of uh, what would be on the horizon there. And then personal life, just trying to figure out how to be a dad, man. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's like a full-time job, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would assume incredibly fulfilling. So, uh, yeah. all right, well, we'll close this out in a second, but for, if you, if you've got a little time to spend with us, um, we got the lightning round coming up. Are you cool with that? Yeah. Perfect. All right. And it's time to get to the nitty gritty, the hard hitting questions. <laughs> finally. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> What was your first job? When I was 12 years old, I detasseled cornfields in Nebraska in the summer. You you detasseled? Yeah, so it's it's a real uh, interesting thing. They get bus full of 12-year-old kids and they wake them up at 5 a.m., send them out to the cornfields, and then there are male and female corn plants and you have to remove the tassels from the top of the female corn plant to allow for pollination from the male corn plant. So it was literally six hours, seven hours a day, just walking down cornfields, pulling the tops off of corn stalks. All right. Interesting. That, that, yeah. that question always gets a wide range of answers. I'll say that is certainly uh, a first for us yeah. in asking that one. Um, yeah. So thank you for sharing. Com- completely stereotypical Nebraska, I think. <laughs> Probably true. Yeah. Um, 
What is your fondest youth sports memory thinking anything pre-college? I played peewee baseball and I was horrible, right? Just, just bad at it. But I do remember it was off of a couple errors, but in one game I got a triple. So it was a single and then there was an error, ran to the second base, another error, ran to third base, but it goes down in my book as I hit a triple. And that was probably, uh, it was not in any big game, just a regular weekly game, but I felt really good uh, making it all the way to third base because uh, I was usually a strikeout, ground out, maybe get a single kind of guy. Love it. They're probably still, they're still talking about that in the youth leagues to this day. Oh, oh for sure. For sure. <laughs> Uh, what was the first concert you ever attended? The first concert I went to was my, it was my s junior year. I went to a band called Cursive. They're from Nebraska, from Omaha. And a buddy of mine, it was the first time my parents let me drive somewhere uh, without them. Uh, so we drove two hours to Omaha and went to Cursive. It was at, at uh the venue was called the Sokol Auditorium, which I no longer, I think is no longer open. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. A couple kids getting out on the road. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I distinctly remember that whole night. What, what genre would cursive fall under? I think they'd be like indie rock, alternative rock, um, college rock, I guess. Yeah. Is that, is that still your genre of choice to this day? Well, when I was in college, I worked at the radio station for uh, a semester. And so I don't, I mean, I guess it's all situational, you know, um, driving around probably, but if I'm training now, probably, uh, I probably fall back to some like nineties hip hop when I train, um, when I'm working in the office, probably a little bit more kind of classic rock stuff. So my genre or my palette has expanded genres. Mature. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what does a successful day look like for you? A successful day, I wake up and have time to make some pour over coffee. That's like my little daily treat if I can get it, um, which means that my daughter slept in a little bit. Um, I get to the office around you know, eight o'clock don't have a whole bunch of emails to answer, but I maybe answer some emails, write some lesson plans, get into the, the lab and do a little bit of research, um, get out by you know, 4.30, 5 p.m., hit a workout uh, with my wife at the gym, and then come home, make a little dinner, and uh, probably watch, oh, one or two shows on Netflix, and then hopefully in bed by 9.30 like it real real exciting day yeah it, it's i mean i'm i got goosebumps just listening to you talk about it yeah. uh, wait any any can you give us any netflix recommendations anything we should check out well um we just started witcher uh that seems like it's pretty it's like a fantasy um type of show kind of kind of along the lines of like game of thrones type fantasy stuff um before that, not on Netflix, but on HBO, we did watch Watchmen. That was pretty exciting. Um, on Amazon, we're watching, it's called Good Omens. It's like about um, the apocalypse and it's like a comedy, but it's about the apocalypse and there's like a antichrist and a, an angel kind of like working their way through it. 
um, really just watching Mad Men. Before that, we rewatched The Office. So we like to use Netflix to watch shows that we know are great instead of trying to go find great shows. Fair, fair. And I, w- I will say, I, I started watching uh, Watchmen and uh, I bowed out about three episodes in because I was wildly confused. So uh, kudos to you for sticking with it because I couldn't understand what the hell was going on. Well, so I took a poli-sci course in undergrad and we had to read the graphic novels. And so mm-hmm. I think that's helped because I understand the, the previous story. Fair. Well, I'm glad uh, that went a different direction because I was a poli-sci major and I was like thinking to myself, oh, shit. <laughs> uh, what did I miss? Um, you mentioned uh, a holistic approach specifically in regards to your daughter. I was wondering uh, in regards to yourself, what are some hobbies that you have or maybe a talent you have that falls kind of outside of the range of uh, the, the work that you do day to day? So my hobby that nobody except my wife really knows about is I really do enjoy uh, photography, taking analog photography specifically, so not like digital photography. Um, So I try to do that, get some of that in every now and then. Um, And I also really try to read at least, be reading at least one fiction book at a time, because there's a lot of books out there, you know, about mindfulness, about whatever but I try to at least keep one fiction book going because I, I feel like that's an important um, component of building your kind of imaginative capabilities, right? I think we get too bogged down with these kind of self-improvement or self-advancement books that we forget that sometimes just a good story is is more enjoyable. Absolutely. What are you reading right now, fiction-wise? Uh, Utopia. It's... Uh, it's kind of a, a classic. I just so I just finished up um, Beowulf not too long ago, and then a quick read was Albert Camus's The Stranger, which I had uh, you know not to go too philosophical, but I had read that before I was married and had a kid, and then I just reread it, and it um, it's very different reading it after you have um, you know some more I'll say dependence in life. Um, but now I'm reading uh, Utopia by Thomas More. Never heard of any of those. Well, no, Beowulf I've heard of. I'll say that. Uh, you know, if I don't, I don't know uh, if anybody else is maybe as skeptical or cynical as me, but The Stranger is really interesting because it just makes you think about um, think about how much anything matters or if anything does matter. So if you want to kind of get in your brain for a while, it's a pretty quick read. Hmm. I don't want to, can I jump in on that? But please do, yeah. Uh, ben, I read that too, and I know exactly what you're talking about. It is, uh, it, it's, there's a, is it nihilism? Is it essentially about nihilism, or? I, I think technically it's absurdism, but yeah, uh, along the same lines, right? Um, yeah, it, it was, uh, it left me in a pretty weird place. It's been a, a, probably a decade since I read it, but um, yeah, it makes you think about some stuff. Yeah. So now, now to the, the training question that Jim mentioned. Um, I'm curious about, uh, sometimes you see people, it's mostly on Instagram, uh, which should probably clue me <laughs> in to begin with, but the, uh, they're wearing like the, uh, the Bane masks uh, that are like restricting your breathing in some way. 
And then there's all this, there's kind of a lot of uh, technology or technology with heavy air quotes surrounding like breathing and how that could help. I was wondering like between the masks and like the hyperbaric chamber, I've heard stuff about, is there sort of any legitimacy to any of that stuff or is it all just kind of uh, Instagram nonsense? I'm gonna say it, it all depends on the application, right? Um, I'm a big believer that there that everything can work, it just depends on what you're trying to get done, right? So, yeah, we'll talk about those Bane masks, right? They are the victim of a misnomer, right? Because people say that they're altitude masks, and that's wrong. They do not simulate altitude. Um, you, The only way you can simulate altitude is to go to altitude. But what they do do is, like you said, restrict your breathing, so they make your respiratory muscles work harder. Right. So just like any other muscle, you can train it. So if it's working harder, that means when you go back to regular breathing, it won't, you know, going back to what we talked about at the very beginning, the oxygen cost or the metabolic cost of breathing will not be as significant because you've trained those muscles. Hmm. So that can be an application. There's also with that, um, typically it will force you into a more diaphragmatic breath, which is like a big buzzword right now. But if we talk about the physiology there, um, diaphragmatic breathing will shift you a little bit closer towards parasympathetic state, which is a more relaxed, you know, we say rest and digest. It's a more relaxed state. Um, whereas if we carry stress throughout a day, we'll find that we are um, breathing what we'll say higher in the lung, which means we kind of shrug up a little bit and we're huffing and puffing our shoulders up and down. It makes you more sympathetic, which is fight or flight, which is not great to be, you know, in your normal day. So the Bane mask might help you breathe a little bit more diaphragmatic, which would then help you maybe stay more relaxed. And yeah, like the chambers and stuff. Um, I know with the hyperbaric chamber, as far as like injury recovery or, um, you know, I know there's some cancer treatments, I think, use the hyperbaric chamber. There's applications for all these things because that's what kind of gets lost in this world of Instagram uh, experts. These technologies were developed, right? So there was some reason to develop and nobody just thought out of the blue like, oh, I'm just going to I'm going to make a mask that restricts your breathing. There is some research that somehow got people to think that this would work, right? So it's it's a lot, of, a lot to do with just the application. Um, but there's the caveat to all of that, that we through training, through external means, you only really have control to like 30% of the effect that we can get, you know, the rest is genetics and, and all that. So hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that helped you navigate that at all. Yeah. Well, it was a very, uh, thoughtful and measured response. Uh, so I didn't get the like inflammatory soundbite that I was hoping for, but, uh, <laughs> but that's okay because here, I'll give you, I'll give you, my inflammatory soundbite, it depends. There. That's wow. That kind of got it. Yeah. Wow. Will you write that down? It depends. I Yep. That's going on the promo. Um Yeah. Yeah, you're gonna get some comments about that one for oh, sure. Thanks. Oh, the message boards will be a light. Uh yeah. so final question I have for you. Uh you are undoubtedly a leader in this field and I am wondering what advice you would give to a future leader who is hoping to embark on a similar journey. Well, I'll, I'll give similar advice to what I give my students. Um, don't force it and don't feel 
like you need to make any decision right now. Uh, nothing I've done or nothing I've been able to do came off of a rash emotional decision in the moment. But that being said, I will default to diving in on, on any opportunity that's given to me, right? So uh, again, the, the opportunity to have an interview with my advisor at Indiana, I said yes, and I drove 11 hours to go see him, right? I, I did not waver on that. Um, so having a willingness to jump into opportunities when they come, but know that any decision you make will not be the definition mark period, end of story. Awesome, love that. Well, sir, you have made it through the lightning round on Scape. Congratulations. All right, uh, all right. And, and absolutely killed it. So thank you very much. No, this was great. Uh, ben, seriously, congratulations. Alex, it can be very tough. I apologize <laughs> for that. Uh, the video's off, but I imagine you're sweating. I'm <laughs> All right. Well, so listen, I, I really, really do. I'm, I'm very grateful for your time today. I think, um, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I think it's, I think your ideas are necessary. I think they're thoughtful and, um, we certainly look forward to pushing them out in, in whichever ways that we can, but, um, your approach, um, is what I hope people will latch on to more than anything, more than anything single inflammatory soundbite, no offense, Alex, uh, or anything. Just, just it's because it's the approach, right? And I think you'd be the first one to say that if, if, a, if a healthy body of research came out that, that said all the stuff that we're talking about is wrong, maybe you should specialize at eight, hypothetically. You know, if, if the research was conclusive in one direction or the other, then maybe we should pull back, be humble, reinvestigate, and, and move on from there. Um, so I, and, and that's, that's why I'm so grateful to have you on. So thanks for all the work you're doing and thanks for spending time with us today. No, thank you guys. This was great. I really enjoyed it. We could not do our work without coffee. Is that fair, Alex? Fair. And there are not many better coffee spots in Chicago than Gallery Cafe. Gallery Cafe, which is run by our good friend Eugene and his brother Billy and just a host of amazing people, is located at 1760 West North Avenue in Chicago, Illinois. It is an historic building in a really cool neighborhood, Wicker Park, with high quality coffee sourced from around the world and roasted in-house. They've also got food. We actually splurged and got a, what was it, an apple cider potato donut today. But they also make sandwiches and amazing breakfast wraps to order. Perfect place to grab a cup of coffee, get some work done, and stick around till lunch. Make sure you stop in and let them know the Good Athlete Project sent you.